This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we're joined by Preston Ulmer, author of Deconstruct Faith, Discover Jesus, founder and director of the Doubters Club, pastor at North Point Church in Springfield, Missouri, and many pastoral roles before that. Preston, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be here. And I don't know if uh, you and Marty want to talk a little bit about how you got together, um, and I'd also love to hear some more details about who you are, what you're family is like, your hobbies, whatever you want to add to my introduction that would kind of give people a picture of who you are. I'll jump in. I mean, I first uh, first met Marty by way of him endorsing my book. I had a short list of people that I'm like, it would be awesome um, if I could have an endorsement from one of these minds. And Marty was on that short list. And ever since then, I think I've just bothered him on social media enough for him to invite me on his podcast. (laughs) Well, it was, you know, the team has done a pretty good job of sending. um, They told me that we're not just going to send you every single book that is a part of our publishing house. We're going to try to pick the ones that we feel like are kind of in your vein and in your alley. And we'll send those to you. And, and your book came through and, and it it was, it was a great choice. I was glad they, they sent it. I thought it was a really, um, really helpful resource. And, um, I just, yeah, I just, well, I'm excited to talk about it more today, but one of the things that you do, uh, Preston is you have this, this thing called the doubters club, which by the way, I love just by the name alone, but I know very little about, can you tell us more about the doubters club, what it is, what you do, what your passions in your heart, just, just give us the, the long elevator, like a 40 floor elevator pitch, like give us the long version. Well, I'm scared of heights. No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yes, I'll tell you uh, the Doubters Club. So this is what we do. We've launched over 100 Doubters Clubs around the world. They never take place in churches. They're not ministries. They're actually clubs. They're co-moderated by a Jesus follower and someone who doesn't follow Jesus that are actually friends. Hmm. And they the whole goal, Marty, is model friendship and pursue truth and goodness together. That's the whole goal. And Christians aren't known to be able to throw gatherings without ulterior motives. So we have to Mm. constantly, Mm. we got to constantly, you know, tell people and show people this is really what we're about. So we have doubters clubs in coffee shops, bars, pubs, um, pottery uh, places, parties, burger joints, neighborhoods. And we started it, you know, about six years ago in Denver, Colorado. And honestly, if you're going to ask me like, hey, what are you most passionate about? Training people to live Doubters Club as a lifestyle to help bridge that gap um, in families. We just, as I travel and speak, I hear about the divide more and more from people who inherited a faith that they don't believe in anymore and to help people launch Doubters Club. So it is fascinating. It's not a debate. There's a lot of levity to those rooms but the, the group, you, you'd find this interesting, Marty, the group actually votes on what they want to talk about the next time they meet. So they meet once a month, 
And it's always co-moderated by two people who don't agree with each other, but are dear friends. Yeah. So, and, and I, and I hear this and what you're describing, you said, we're not known for having ulterior motives. So let me, let me ask you to double down on that part of doubters club. I'm assuming that doubters club doesn't have some ulterior motive. Like there's no, like there's (laughs) something about the club itself, the doubts themselves, the ability to like, there's some kind of whatever you want to call that. Maybe fellowship is too much of a Christian word or whatever, but there's something about that space that's already sacred enough. Give me just a tad bit there. Yeah. So we actually say in Doubters Club, question faith, question certainty. Mm. And we we have five ground rules, sort of like we don't interrupt. We listen with an open mind. We value respect above being right. So we always go over those things. And what we're trying to do is to say, we, and, and I know it's not for everybody, but honestly, I desire spaces where there's no pressure to make people think like me, but I want to get to know stories and questions and doubts and um, objections by way of knowing the person. And so I get from all sides, I mean, Christians who would be like, oh, it's a universalist club. And sure. I'm like, no, we're not universalists. We're just <laughs> letting people share their beliefs yeah. and ask questions. And then I get from... Uh, people who don't share the same faith as me that they'd say like, okay, so is the motive to get us to go to church? And I say, sure. No, not at all. I don't care if you ever come to church. Um, right. That's why this doesn't take place in the church. So yeah, that's doubters club. I, I, I love it so much. Yeah. That's really cool. Do you have anything about family hobbies, whatever, whatever is unique about you, you'd throw in there before we get too deep into this. I have an incredible wife that she just told me the other day. Uh, she said, you know, the, we are talking about different uh, speaking engagements coming up. She said, the evolution of your faith has been so fun to watch. Uh, and and so that's my wife. That She's just faithful both on the journey and with the, with the family. And then um, and I have two daughters, Piper and Brennan. And, um, and so they're just, they're just joys. I mean, they, they are the reason why it's hard to travel. Not yeah. because they need me home, but I think I need to be home with them. I yeah. might be a codependent parent. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. That's good. <laughs> well, I, I, I do love the Doubters Club um, idea. As I've been looking at it, I'm thinking like, wow, there's probably some things that we can take away and apply to at least some of our Baymont discussion groups. Our, our groups are very much hands off as far as our involvement and our requirements and everything. And you know, I don't necessarily think we're going to add a bunch of requirements, but we do have a lot of people who are like, well, how do I, how do I do this? How do I structure this? How do I mm. get people in? And, and I think Dodgers Club could be a good resource for people to look at as they're trying to start a group and maybe take some things away from it that would work in their discussion. So I appreciate the work that you've put into that. Hey, any way I can be helpful, um, let me know. Seriously, who would love to help? Awesome. Well, the, the main reason we're here today is to talk about this most recent work of yours, this book called Deconstruct Faith, Discover Jesus, how questioning your religion can lead you to a healthy and holy God. And I think the title probably speaks quite a bit to that, but maybe give me a, a little bit more about the book, maybe the the impetus to write it, what led you to it, and and how you, you know, what your process was in putting this all together. Yeah, well, the book um, came out of a passion for interacting with people who don't think like me. And you can imagine in Doubters Club, it's filled with people that are deconstructing. 
And so originally, my first book called The Doubters Club, I had written and I didn't plan on like, oh, let's do a second book right away. But but I went down this road of interviewing a lot of people in The Doubters Club, uh, celebrity pastors, people who've left the faith that would be of our, you know, that would be more famous and just learning their stories. And as I learned, I realized, oh my goodness, um, the the Christian circles that most of us are familiar with, um, primarily an evangelical circle, those Christian circles had some role to play in pushing or helping or even opening the door on the way out for people. And I just, uh, the more I read the biographies of Jesus, specifically Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I realized like, no, Jesus was a deconstructionist. And so all of that combined, I don't know if it was angst, if it was joy or a mix of both, but all that combined is like when I reached out to my publisher and said, hey, I, I think I'd like to write a book on this topic. And obviously this book shares, like it has such a common affinity with with my own and your heart and my heart. And I, I'm getting the, as we spend more and more time, even just on the Zoom call, like I feel like there's a lot of things that um, you and I would just share as people and as and personality. But one of the things that I've been talking about on my book tour all the time, like there's always a spot that I hit where I, I just talk about how doubts are so important that doubts are not the sign of a lack or an anemic faith, but they're the they're the sign of a vibrant faith. But we haven't been taught to frame it that way. So I, I just love this common affinity with with your book and and just that theme of deconstruction, which we'll talk about more before we're done. But but then even just going like taking a step back even to even think about this, your, your heart and your passion for the doubters club. And Brent asked you kind of like where, where the book came out of, I want to step back even one step further and say this passion of yours, this, this heart of yours for doubts in that space, like there's an abstract, like, like there's a logical reason why that makes sense. But if I could ask you like personally, what is the thing that personally mattered to you? That made this important because there's a lot of things that make sense. Like we could do a lot of stuff. We could talk about a lot of things, but but what makes this resonate with you on a personal level? What makes it so important to you beyond just the the reason why it's important? But why does this for Preston like this is the thing that that invigorates you and you give your your life to? Well, thanks for asking. I mean, if it wasn't wrapped up in my story, I probably wouldn't choose this lane. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my story. Uh, it is my story, Marty. I. Uh, I went to a Bible college and walked away from faith in Bible college. And so there's, I had people during that journey that gave me, they were well-intentioned people. They gave me really bad advice. I mean, listen to more worship music. Um, uh, I even got the advice, sleep on the word of God, like in some sort of <laughs> osmosis it would get in my mind. And maybe it's because I slept on like NIV and not ESV. I don't know why it didn't work. <laughs> but, but honestly, you know, they gave advice that was just so outlandish. And there is one individual, a, a lot of people at play, one individual who told me, he said, I don't care where you land as long as you're honest. Hmm. And he, he actually, he just assumed I had integrity and that I wanted to be honest. He didn't push me away. I was invited in his office on a regular basis. He ended up doing my wife and I's wedding. I mean, I believe in a Jesus-looking God because of this person. Yeah. Uh, my family had a role to play too, but I'm saying in that season, that was a critical season. Yeah. And when he did that, I think that set the trajectory for how I 
believe the only way I know how to be Christian and the only way I know how to do that is to ask questions. And I used to look at the Bible as a crisis intervention book with all the answers. And that just didn't work for me. This certainty seeking faith rumbled and it caused a disaster in my life. And now I look at the Bible and it's a book of questions. And I'm like, wow, I can relate to this. And I wonder if anyone else could. And oh yeah, God does interact with people like this. And so um, it, it is a highly personal lane for me. Mm. And I sometimes worry because I'm like, uh, I, I don't think, like I said, I don't think there's another way that I could follow Jesus with honesty and uh, authenticity. And so the reason I say I worry is this is not like, this, this is not a lucrative lane. Right. This is just, right. it's, 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 it's uh, hey, we all doubt, we all ask questions. And, uh, but I, I wouldn't have it any other way. I, I love that it, as you tell that story about this individual that meant so much to you, like you, you use the phrase something along the line of he trusted that he trusted I had integrity. He trusted that like, it's so interesting that in our typical Christian paradigm, we think, oh, well, we're saved. We have the best of attentions. Our, our intentions are kind of above reproach. Their intentions are just so messed up, jacked up. Um, unbelievers this. Like I'm always trying to tell people, like just because they're, just because we may even categorize them as lost doesn't mean they're stupid. Like doesn't mean they don't they they lack intelligence. It doesn't mean that can't we just trust in their humanity enough to believe that they like their humanity alone is enough. Their image of Godness is enough to trust that they they want the right stuff. They're leaning into the right things. Like trust the process. Mm-hmm. Don't trust that the entire process, let alone the entire person, is broken. Like trust that we're all share enough of this humanity. I love just that aspect of the doubters club, bringing these things together because that space alone is sacred enough because we're all sharing at least the human experience, at least the human journey, which is far more tied to faith, maybe not in a creedal sense, but in a, just a shared humanity sense. And I love that, that, that this person in your life trusted you with that, like knew that I'm assuming trusted that God was already at work, like the, it, it blew up the categories, and I, I love that so much. Well, and that's why it is so personal. Is again, I will always remember what he said. I don't care where you land as long as you're honest. Ugh, yeah. And no, no, no question was off limits. And here's the here's actually the piece that we don't talk about in churches. You know, we I think we're at a place now culturally where we'll say questions are welcome, um, but it, differing answers aren't welcome. And I think that for my, my journey towards the kingdom, I've had differing answers along the way. I mean, my faith has evolved and, um, intuition, experiences, imagination, all of that has come in where before I felt like those three things were told to be left out. And it was about, you know, you are as faithful as you are psychologically certain. And when I experienced real life, I'm like, oh. I'm certain of very little. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was, it was very meaningful. And it sounds like you've taken that experience and turned it around and offered that space to so many other people. One of the things that I really enjoyed about your book is all the interviews that you had throughout. And I was, I was curious, like, were all of these interviews conducted specifically for the book? Because it kind of, I kind of get the impression that you just, love to give people this space anyway. And maybe some of these were, were beforehand and you said, Oh, maybe I could actually, 
maybe I could actually share this story in a way that would be helpful for people. Like, what was the process of going through all of these interviews? Yeah, there were some interviews where I reached out to people or people's publicists or whatever and just said, hey, I'm working on a project. Because at the time, I didn't know where I would land. You know, I knew kind of what, what I was seeing, again, in the Jesus story in my own life. But that doesn't, just because I see a certain thing a certain way doesn't mean it's always right. So I would I would submit that, like, hey, I would like to do an interview. And it was set up as such. Other things were just stories of people that I'm doing life with. Like I said, with people in the Doubters Club or in my community or in my neighborhood. And just seeing this common theme of people are deconstructing faith. And, um, you know, we use that word intentionally, not religion. They're deconstructing faith, which is a highly personal part of our being. And in doing that, they're discovering something. And, and my hope would be they discover Jesus. And a lot of times, um, Jesus, like they would be surprised to find Jesus did this same thing when he was walking amongst us. And so that was kind of the deal. It's like some were intentional, some were unintentional. And the further along I got, I'm like, I need a voice um, that has gone through this. And I need to hear their story too. Yeah, there's certainly an authenticity and openness to your approach that that was really moving to me. And I think something that I will hopefully learn from and apply to my own conversations. I was also really like your interview with Joshua Harris hit me particularly strongly because I think by the time the headlines about him scrolled by like, Oh, Joshua Harris has renounced his faith. It's like, at that point I'm like, Oh, another one. <laughs> and so your interview with him said, okay, there's something there. There's something of value to his experience. There's humanity in him and, and just approaching, like, I think there's just so many people and obviously every one of us can't, you know, go through that process with every other person. Like you, you, you just can't take the burden of the whole world on yourself, but to not immediately write people off when they have questions and to approach them and, and see what we can learn from them and see how we can walk alongside them, uh, was very inspiring. Well, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I'll tell you a funny story that I, I haven't said this, but in a few small circles, the day I interviewed him, I had quite a few interviews lined up. Like I remember waking up and being like, okay, I'm going to have, I don't know why I didn't think it would be like too much, but I, <laughs> okay, I need my coffee and we're going to have interview after interview. And, and you know, you're at that point on a book deadline, your deadline of, for the manuscript. And, uh, and as I was interviewing him, it was so emotional for me. <sighs> I walked out of my office in tears and told my wife, I said, Hey, any of us can have that same story. And I had to cancel all my other interviews. I rescheduled them. I didn't, honestly, didn't have the capacity to go through another story. And so I just wrote about that interview privately and what that meant. And uh, hopefully that showed up in the pages. Yeah. Absolutely it did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to I talk about this word that we've not been afraid to use in this episode. And we try to talk about it on the podcast too, but super aware of this word deconstruction. Um, obviously, <laughs> it's da, da, da. it's in your title, and it's such a hot topic. I mean, in faith circles and outside faith circles, but especially online. Like, 
uh, I mean, these days there's just so many emotional responses to the word. It will always come up at my different stops on book tour and meet and greets. And, and you can feel the room go different directions when that word gets said. Like you can just feel the different, like this group's going that way and this group's leaning in and this group's getting angry. And what what is your overall, um, just personally, how do you feel about this cultural moment? Like not just the concept, abstract concept of deconstruction, but this moment that we're in culturally and, and faith circles and maybe faith adjacent or whatever you want to call that circles is does it exhaust you are you you rolling your eyes are you invigorated are you frustrated are you worried like what is your what's your experience a little bit of everything when it just comes to the the deconstruction conversation today well i do uh i experience people that well let me say it this way the us versus them narrative is very strong around this word sure and when people, here's kind of what I, I'm sensing in culture as I'm traveling and speaking on it. When people aren't personally invested in the lives of those who are deconstructing, deconstructing, or they haven't hit a wall in their own faith, then they tend to write it off. When people like parents, let's say they're parents of now ex-evangelical um, kids, and they're ex- they've heard that word from their kids, but they've never heard it in a church setting it allows them to be like, wait, wait, what is this thing? And so I think the moment we're in is revealing, do you have personal relationship with people who don't think, look, or act like you? Yeah. And I think the word deconstruct will quickly reveal that. And um, be- because it it sounds like, if you don't know anything about it, if you're not invested in it, it sounds like the word destruct. Sure. And it sounds like deconvert, mm. right? There's yeah. similar just in the actual word itself. And so that's why in the book, I, I have a chapter, Deconstruction versus Deconversion. And these things are not at all the same thing. And it is disorienting when you say that in a church setting. Yeah, absolutely. And I did appreciate that that part of the book. Um, you know, the other part I appreciate about the book, and I've told you this online uh, in our in our different messaging back and forth, but my, my favorite part of the book is this parallel you make to the movie Encanto. Uh, I... I loved that parallel. I I now can't watch the movie without thinking about it. Uh, so I have this thing that I do when I travel. I don't know why I keep doing this, but obviously I'm on all these airplanes and I watch these movies that are in the, you know, the seat backs. And, and I, I always choose these. I think, oh, oh this will be just a safe movie I don't have to pay attention to. And I keep picking like <laughs> these favorites of mine, like Inside Out. And then I just like sit there and just weep oh openly on the airplane. Yes, <laughs> and I can't stop. And and now now I'm like, oh, Encanto. Oh, I love Preston's book. Oh, I want to rewatch that movie. And I'm on the airplane now, just like considering the church community and those struggling and doubting and deconstruction. And I'm like, just a hot mess on the airplane now for like every movie <laughs> that I plug in there. But can you just talk about that parallel? Um, give us the brief like explanation of what you do when you parallel those because i found it i mean it's it's fun and i laugh it was it was actually very helpful for me like it's a very helpful connection that allowed me to consider what it is that we often do in faith circles so talk to me about that well i'm glad it worked marty i'm glad it had an impact because sometimes my (laughs) applications don't always make sense uh, the movie. You know, I should actually actually interrupt you, Preston. We have a spoiler horn that we blow here. So if anybody hasn't seen the movie, Brent, you should probably blow the spoiler horn here. Oh man, yeah. Well, yeah, 
Yeah, people should see it. People should see it. Pe- if you haven't seen it yet, I don't. Even, I don't even know what to tell you. But uh, all right, I digress. Go ahead, press it. The movie is about the Madrigal family and most of the people, Peppa, Dolores. You know, um, they have these superpowers. Um, uh, one of them speaks to animals, has a pet jaguar. You know, all those things. And then there's that character, Maribel, and she's just normal. She doesn't have a power, and he's not actually performing for any crowd. Mm. And that's really that's really important. And so um, there's also a character, Bruno. And and if you're listening to this and you haven't seen the movie, perhaps you've heard the song, We Don't Talk About Bruno. You know, I think he's like number one hit for longer than uh, Let It Go. Yeah. Praise God, someone knocked Let It Go out of there. <laughs> okay, so um, Bruno... Bruno prophesies, he gives like prophecies about the house, the Encanto. It's, it's, it's this magical house. And he gives prophecies. So he kind of gets exiled and they don't talk about him because they didn't like the prophecies. And he gets exiled into the walls of the house. He loves the house deeply. He loves the family. His words, his prophecies, his insights were never to get people away from him. They were always to help fix the house. So so Maribel, who doesn't have any special powers, he isn't distracted by power or anything, and she's just ordinary. She starts to notice the cracks in the house, in the walls, and in the foundation. She tries to bring it up. Abuela is saying, no, nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong, cover up, cover up, cover up. And she's like, we got to figure out how to fix the walls and or the, the holes in the house. And she finds Bruno in the walls. And, and in fact, he's so in love with the family that he'll even have dinner with them on the other side of her wall. And I just picture it like communion, you know, he's having, he's sitting at table and they're eating. They don't, if they knew he was that close, they would fortify it more. You know, they just, he's part of the family, but they don't like what he has to say. Well, Maribel finds him. The walls end up, the whole house ends up coming down and he ends up rebuilding it. He's part of rebuilding and he's brought into the house, but it does take some things to fall. And, uh, and so in, in the book, I just talk about Jesus is hiding in the walls of the house and there's the brothers and sisters who don't fit the family mold and they're finding him as they can see the house is cracking and the house is in fact cracking. And so that's, that's the story of Encanto. I, I think, you know, I think that, uh, it's a great parable for where we're at. I can't even follow up after that. I'll need to be collecting myself over here. So I'm going to let Brent ask the next question. I I think this reveals some of my own church baggage in that when, when I first saw like a pop culture reference, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit like, Oh, another thing that we're just going to spiritualize. But it like, it is such a beautiful picture. And when you like, how do you untangle the, like, the cultural stuff that doesn't really apply. And like, because when you do, when you look at that scene, especially where you see him on one side of the wall with his own table by himself, the rest of the family on the other, the other side, like that is such a, a moving image. But then there's other things about the movie that like, there's jokes, there's other distractions. Like, how do you, how do you whittle it down to something that is so, so powerful as an image and not, I mean, do you, do you get a pushback from other people as like, Oh, why are you, why are you bringing this secular work into what you're talking about? I don't know. I don't know exactly what I'm asking here, but like there was this, there was this resistance in me internally 
when, when I saw that reference, but then it, it, when I got through it, it's like, oh, that is such a powerful image of what's happening here. I don't know. It's probably more of a curse than anything. Of, <laughs> of, like, just watch the movie. We we're at a movie recently, a Disney movie, and I leaned over to my wife and started saying like, oh my goodness, this is really, and she's like, hey, just watch it for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, honestly, here's the deal. I think that my, I think there's a filter in the work I'm doing right now with doubters, skeptics, spiritually wounded people, I think there's a filter I can't unsee. Okay. It's like, um, I mean, you can talk Toy Story and how Woody could have went home without Buzz, but Andy would have been like heartbroken. And so he committed to this long life being with Buzz and they're both transformed. And then they both get to find Andy and I remember watching that during COVID and being with my kids and being like, oh, God doesn't want us to go home without buzz. So it's like a curse, right? It's like this, <laughs> I, you can't unsee yeah. certain things, but I think it's because that's my life right now. Mm. So so on the other hand, however, like that's what art is is supposed to do for us, right? So art's having these same conversations. That filter matters for you because... That filter speaks to this moment that we're that we're living in, the things that we're, and so art's doing the same thing. It's just doing it. So I I don't think that's this crazy, far off curse either. I think sometimes we're just noticing. Um, I don't notice it in art enough, and and when somebody just shows me like, well, just look what they're doing here. They're like, just look at what's going on, and I'm like, oh my gosh, and then I can't unsee it. Um, and not to <laughs> right. say that that's what Encanto was trying to do was make a movie about deconstruction, but. But just those that angsty because it, it it's beyond it isn't just in our faith circles it's not just the church that's doing this it's all kinds of systems in our world it's it's the general it, and this has always been true of every new generation struggling to figure out how to fly and to build a new world that stands on the shoulders of the one that came before them and so these are these are moments that I, I think they're they're just really helpful connections. That bridges the gap for so many people because some people don't want to listen to an hour long episode about the Jewish con context of the Gospels. But man, show me in Kanto deconstructing faith, and I'm in it to win it. So I love, <laughs> I love the the context there. It's great. Preston, do you speak a lot at your church? Are you a, a preaching pastor, or what is what is the role in your church, and how how does this work fit into what you do in your local community? Well, I got to say, I'm very thankful that my local faith community allows me to be a pastor, to write about deconstruction, to encourage deconstruction. I, there's a lot, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of churches that would be like, and that's your exit strategy, right? Um, uh, my role when I'm not traveling and, and speaking and, and doing the things that go along with writing a book is I, over the spiritual formation, I'm spiritual formation director for all of our campuses. And so this idea of discipleship starts way pre, I'll use a pretty universal word, way pre-conversion, um, that how can we help people be formed in all the stages of their spirituality? Deconstruction is part of that journey. And I, you know, I think that it's all throughout scriptures, I think it's all throughout history. It's kind of our journey inward. And so my work works together with that. And then obviously what I do with Doubters Club is I, I am interested in how people are being formed, whether they're being formed like me. I don't I don't want that, but I think that Jesus has a lot to say with how people are being formed in the world. So 
it, it seems to go hand in hand. I do speak quite a bit at the church as well. And I try not to always speak on the same topic, but I am drawn to this topic. So speaking of all those other things that you do, um, are there any other things that you're working on? Things that we've talked about the Doubters Club. We talked about this this most recent book. Do you have other books? Do you have an upcoming book? Do you have anything else that you're working on that you are excited about? Might not even be something that maybe it's somebody else's work, but is there anything that you're just like the world needs to know about this thing that's coming or this thing that is happening uh, what could you, what last little bits could you give us here before we're all done today? Yeah, well, um, I actually just finished like, like today, a few, maybe an hour before we got on this podcast. Um, I just finished recording for the first time, all the training sessions for the doubters club. And I'm super excited to release that content into the world that people can just get that and they can live it as a lifestyle. They can launch doubters clubs in their own communities um, so I'm actually going to have the team put it on the website, the doubtersclub.com slash BEMA, and then we'll have all the resources there. So if you're listening to this, you can go to that and the resources will be there. So I'm excited about that. Um, I'm excited about um, what we're seeing with the book. We're having a lot of parents write in of saying, hey, we kind of screwed this up. Um, when they were deconstructing, we said some things and did some things that we got to go back and apologize. What can we do? So um, a friend of mine and I were starting um, a cohort for evangelical parents who are trying to reconnect with their ex-evangelical children. And we're working with, uh, we'll probably start that in January, February timeframe. Um, but we're, we're going to keep those going. And so uh, anything that's going to continue to equip people, uh, you know, I know the church, we're like evangelism, but I think, honestly, I think there's a case to be made that reconciliations talked about more than evangelism. And so stepping into that space and in families is what I'm really, really pumped for. Ooh, I, oh man, I, I really like that. I was saying recently, who maybe you and I should talk some more. Um, I was saying recently at a big event I was doing, I, I feel like the age that we're, that the church is being called into is one is going to be age of confession and forgiveness, like confession, confession and seeking forgiveness. Um, I don't think it's going to be like this age of we're running the show and we have all the answers that you're looking for. Um, we've done that really poorly for a really long time. And, uh, and and I think it was never really our show anyway. It's always been God's show. Like God's the one redeeming. God's the one drawing all men and women to himself. God's the one. God, it's always God's work. We're partners. We're along for the We're hired hands. We're along for the ride. And I, when you said that, I was just like, "Woo!" I, I have been feeling very, very similar things. And doesn't mean I'm a prophet or I'm right, but um, I really like that. So that's that's very cool. Well, Marty, we can uh, we can do a lot together. So we should whiteboard some out. The start of it. Yeah, we should whiteboard some in, in Missouri. We'll all have to get together. Sounds great. I would love it. I actually saw. Uh, I was traveling and visited a couple of Bama groups in my hometown, Wichita, Kansas, and we had uh, probably 15 people there and about halfway through we ended up sitting down in this big circle and it was beautiful because I basically didn't talk and the entire room bounced around just sharing experiences and there were um there were two two sets of mother and daughters there and both of them sharing like their faith journey and their their experiences from childhood and then the mother's also like being a part of that process and like seeing those, 
those moments of, oh, I wish I had done something different. Mm -hmm. But then me seeing like, oh, they actually, they're seeing that pain. They're seeing that hurt. They like, maybe they feel a little guilty about it, but they're also here. They're a part of the conversation. And so that idea of like keeping families together, going through this process together, growing together, learning together. I, I love that. And it's beautiful when it happens. Well, I do think, I think what you observed, Marty, what you just said about repentance or confession, I mean, they go hand in hand, don't they? But I, I would say even confession, we have the church, historically, when we practice confession, we gain ground. I, I mean that in, in the purest sense of the word, not in a... Right. Um, you know, but we, we seem to gain even some moral ground of just going first. And there is, there's a book called Conversational Intelligence, talks about cognitive mirroring. Someone has to go first in any relationship. And in the church's relationship with culture, the church should confess first. In fact, I don't even think we should ask culture to confess. No, I think that no. there's, there's, there's something about the household. Yeah. That is so fractured that if the church doesn't go first, they will unintentionally create deeper divides between parents and kids. Well, well and we're unintentionally going to lose ourselves. Like it, it becomes about exactly like this is on some level. This is about our own salvation. I don't. Yes. I don't mean that in some soteriological like getting to heaven. I just mean where, like you said, moral. Um, you used some phrase a moment ago, and it, it is. It's about. It's, it's about, and like our own, yeah, it's about our own salvation. Like there's still stuff that we're working through and the danger of not working through this is that we are, we are an unsaved, distorted, broken mess at, at the feet of the altar of efficiency of a mission that we don't even understand. And even if we understood it, we wouldn't be fit to be on it in the first place. Um, yeah, so right. anyway, I, whoo, this has turned into a different episode all of a sudden. I like it. Well, Hey, the, I, I mean, the house is cracking and I, <laughs> Stop I would, it. I would Stop say it. this, I, <laughs> I would say, here's what's so interesting about deconstruction though. Deconstruction historically, and even in this cultural moment happens from the inside out. We're not talking about people trying to destroy the faith. Oh goodness. Yeah. So we're talking about minds that are looking towards this giant mountain of religion, yeah, church, God, whatever, and they're trying to figure out, like, you know, in the book I use the Mount Rushmore illustration, they're trying to figure out what's the image in the mountain, yeah, and if it's anything outside of a Jesus-looking yeah. God, uh, yeah, we're going to, then we will be we should not act surprised if more deconversions happen, right? Absolutely. Yep. I, I appreciate the work you're doing because I, I remember when I first learned about the Bama podcast, it was like other podcasts, you know, you get, you hear about it and people are like, you should listen to this, you should listen to it. And then I had my deconstructing friends being like, hey, you should really <laughs> listen to this. <laughs> and I'm like, wait, somehow this podcast has gotten, they're like bridging the gap between yeah. the church and the unchurch. So well done. Well, that is my, yeah, that's one of my passions. And if somebody were to ask me the same question I asked you, I'm not sure I'm even self-aware enough to know, like it's connected to my story, 
but yeah, I, I really value. Yeah. There's, we always present two options and those are, those are two valid options, I suppose, but there are more options. There are more options to, to wrestle and to ask questions and to grow. And this conversation doesn't just have to be, there aren't just two jerseys. You're either wearing this Jersey or that Jersey. Like there's, there are way more ways to be. And I do think, um, I mean, you're talking about the walls are cracking. I do think people love the house more than we give them credit for. I think people love love the house. Um, now it feels like I'm getting silly with the metaphor, but I, I do think we always think people are trying to attack this thing. And I don't think people are. I think people are actually mesmerized by it. They love it. Um, and by that, I mean Jesus, the Christ, this thing that they... But then they look at the, what's being like, what's in the frame, and they're like, "Ah, but that doesn't. That's it's bigger than that. It's better than that." And and this is how we get there. So I I do love it, and I do love that we're all doing our parts, and it's it comes together. Yeah. Well, the que- questions are going to be part of it. I I recently was talking to someone, and they told me they said, you know, the scriptures say, and this is someone that's like, I wouldn't say they're a Jesus follower, but they're very curious. They said, scripture says that. The Christ is the revelation of the mystery of God, not that the Christ is the mystery of God solved. And they're like, so how do Christians not ask questions? Like, right. the embodiment of God is a mystery. Yep. And I just remember thinking, that is the only way some people know how to be Christian, and it might be the, the best way. Yep, absolutely. All right, Brent, you better take us home. If not, we could be at this for like two or three more hours if this starts to keep going. <laughs> Which sounds delightful. Um, I think these extended conversations can happen in, you know, Bama discussion groups or doubters club groups or whatever. Definitely needs to be in community with people. Yes. Uh, so Preston, we've got the doubtersclub.com slash Bama that we're going to put in the show notes. We've got links to your books as well and uh, maybe one or two other things that we mentioned along the way. Anything else uh, people should know about as far as how they might get connected to you? Uh, they can follow me on Instagram. It's P.T. Ulmer. Last name's U-L-M-E-R. They can find me on Facebook. I, I wish I was better with TikTok and stuff. But, but but Or they can just email me, Preston at thedoubtersclub.com. Okay. And uh, would, would love to, any way we can help people or resource them, get them plugged into cohorts. We'd love to. Well, we hope people get connected. All of those links will be in the show notes at bayamontdeception.com. We've also got our groups, events, everything else that's coming up there. Our contact page is there. Um, everything you need is on the website. So go there, get connected one way or the other. And thanks for joining us, Preston, today. It's been a pleasure. Well, listen, it's been awesome, and I appreciate everything y'all are doing. Keep it up. And thank you to all the listeners for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Brent's okay stripping the audio off of the Zoom recording. Okay, here we are at the conclusion of the 2023 NFL regular season. The playoffs are about to begin. We're responding to the predictions that we made after week one. And we're going to make some playoff predictions, right? Sure, why not? Okay, good. So, as of week one, Marty predicted that the Chiefs would go 10-7, and seven, maybe 9-8, and eight. But he was pretty, like, he kept coming back to that 10 and 7. He sure did. What happened? What happened is they should have gone 7 and 10. 
but <laughs> combination of an AFC plagued by injuries, combination of some yellow laundry that always bails them out of numerous games. I cannot believe you're saying that. You you realize that a lot of people are going to listen to this. Yeah. Wait, what? yeah, but people that aren't from Kansas City all objectively agree about this. So just they do not. They definitely shush. do not. They definitely do not agree. Uh, so that's what happened. I was one game off, Brent. Um, I think what you mean. I think what you mean is I was. I think what you mean is I was wrong. You can go ahead and say that. Well, I'll, I'll put this way: I I was wrong because we didn't anticipate forty million injuries in the AFC. Had had the AFC quarterbacks all been around, I wouldn't have gone low enough, Brent Billings. Here is the thing. Let's just all let's just all say that had the AFC quarterbacks all been healthy, the Chiefs may have been like five and twelve. First of all, uh, first of all, staying healthy is a part of greatness. That is a fact. Huh. Being on the field to play is a part of greatness, and uh, I will just again allude to a certain off or a certain postseason last year when my quarterback was pretty injured and he won the freaking Super Bowl. Yeah, so that, that spring will anyway, just get you every time. I, but I I will say on on the eleven and six though I don't think we won any games that we shouldn't have won. I think the closest we got to that. I would have admitted that for the Green Bay game, where there was the infamous, by the way, speaking of yellow laundry, the no call when the guy was riding MVS's back into the end zone and they didn't call the pass interference. Oh, yellow laundry. You guys mean penalties, penalty flags. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if anybody's listening to this who doesn't know what football is about, but apparently I'm going to speak for them. I think if we would have gotten that call. And scored and gotten two point conversion. I would have said we got away with one there because I feel like Green Bay played better than we did that entire game. They deserve to win. Yep. I feel like all of our wins are none of them were wins that we shouldn't have had. The Jets. Oh my goodness, Marty. No, no, not oh my goodness. Do you think you have that? You think you have that win? I think that the call that uh, took away the interception uh, would have given them the ball back. I do think that that was that holding call, that defensive holding call was a bad call. I do not feel at all assured that the Jets would have actually been able to go down and win the game after that. And I don't feel like the course of the game before that was such that there was no way that we should have won the game. That's so an interesting take. I admit I, that it was I, a bad I, call. I, I admit that it was a bad call. I'm not saying that the whole game is riding on sure, that call. That's an interesting take. What about the Vikings? I didn't actually see the Vikings game, so I oh, cannot really. Interesting. I... Interesting. Okay, <laughs> okay. Well. Okay. I'm glad you know. I'm glad you know so much about the wins that you that you deserve. So okay, the Viking is the only the Vikings game is the only question mark in my mind then because I didn't watch that game and I don't even really remember watching the highlights of it. <laughs> Other than that. So that's 10 wins that I am accounting for saying like I don't think any of those are wins that we shouldn't have had. Uh, and I can think of I can think of a game or two that easily could have gone another way if it were for a call or just our, it's and it's our fault but the freaking receivers man just dropping every single pass. But whatever. I wonder if this is going to be one of those situations where like Marty has the better arguments but because his sound is so terrible because he's not in his normal recording environment that that Reed will win the popular vote. Marty does not even have an argument here. All he said was, what about the Jets? And what about, <laughs> he's not making any argument. He's just saying, what about? 
I'm the one that had the argument about the Jets game. <laughs> let me go back to a couple I also other... had an argument about the Packers game, which Marty has said nothing about. Let me let me go back to some of the specific predictions that we made. Okay. Uh, didn't actually get a full season prediction for the Bengals out of Marty. Didn't get a full season prediction out of Reed for either team. So we can't really address that. Hold on. I need to talk about that. I need to talk about that because it wasn't here. But Marty and I, we did. I did. Marty remembers me making a prediction about the full season for the Chiefs. And Marty's recollection, and I believe him, is that I said we'll either be 13 and four or maybe 12 and five. Is that correct, Marty? That is what my memory. Okay. So I was also wrong in my prediction then because we were, we, we fell right in between where Marty predicted we would be and where I predicted we would be. I'll have sinned, Reed. It's okay. I don't remember having what I would have said about the Bengals, and it's unfair to try to make that now. So, okay. So then the other thing that I had you guys do was because of when we recorded the episode and when it was going to publish. I said, okay, what what are the predictions for after six games? Reed said that the Chiefs would be five and one after six games. They were indeed five and one. You said that Kelsey should be back. I don't know what you meant by that. Yeah, there was a there was a game where he had uh, some kind of an injury that was. He had the injury in the first game, right? No, no, no. He didn't. Uh, preseason. It wasn't the first game. No, 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 no. Because um, we recorded that before game two. Oh yes, correct. Yeah, he right. No, he he was injured in preseason. He had a knee thing. He didn't play in the first game against the Lions, and then he did come back after that, and okay. he played the rest of the season. Okay, Brent, I would just like to state that. Staying healthy is a part of greatness. So sure, it sure is. It absolutely is. I, I think that is a rubbish statement, but I just wanted to point out that Kelsey's greatness should be called into question. But I digress. Go ahead, continue. <laughs> uh, Marty said the Chiefs would be four and two at best, maybe three and three. Obviously, I've already said they were five and one. That's said and done. Reed said that the Bengals. And he had a, actually a game by game prediction of what the Bengals would be, would do. He said that they mm-hmm. would be four and two. They were actually three and three. Um, M- Marty, you said that you quibbled with which games were going to go which way, but you're not arguing with four and f- two. Again, they were three and three. Whatever. Reed said, if the wide receivers, if our wide receivers don't catch passes, we aren't winning anything. But it's not possible to be as bad as they were against the Lions. Boy. So how did that play out, Reed? Boy. Well, I don't know that Did they that ever we... reach that low ever again in the season? Not, I think that was maybe our worst single game. However, like we never... No, we did not improve over the course of the season. <laughs> uh, our, we have... Marty's nodding in agreement. I mean, anybody watching any of my Chiefs fans out there who watched the end of the Eagles game uh, when Patty just laid a perfect gift from heaven 48 yards in the air to MVS and it was just right in his two hands and he let it go <laughs> there were many many dropped passes Kadarius Tony continued to just really want to make things hard for the Chiefs uh, no we never got better I don't know that we had a single game that was as bad as the Lions game in terms of like number of drops uh, but we did have many drops some of them lost games uh yes so and that is the biggest concern why like who knows what will happen in the postseason uh we are a big liability because our guys still can't catch the football marty your response (laughs) i don't need to respond to that because it's uh it was as bad as it was (laughs) really was we led the league we led the the nfl and dropped passes greatness (laughs) (laughs) i mean (laughs) 
it's always going to be at the top of the charts, right? I will I will say that Patty had his worst statistical year of his career so far, and I think uh, still came out like fifth or sixth in terms of like passing yards and passing touchdowns. So Patty's worst year is still better than 26 other quarterbacks in the league, but whatever. Uh, not super interested in that, more interested in how he stacks up against his own performances in the past. I think he still played pretty well this season. I mean, he definitely, the Raiders game, uh, a few, like um, three, four weeks ago, that he single-handedly lost that game for the Chiefs. Uh, he had two turnovers infamously in seven seconds. Each one resulted in a touchdown for the Raiders defense. That was awful. Uh, so he's he had some blunders this season for sure. I still think he was actually playing at a really high level a lot of the time. And if guys could just catch the ball, it would have turned out differently, but they didn't. So whatever. Uh, final prediction or sort of prediction, a mention uh, that Joe Burrow threw for 82 yards in the first game. Would that continue or would he improve? I think the general the general belief among all of us is that had to improve. Right. And so how did that play out what happened with joe burrow uh well joe had um what i think almost anybody in their right mind would call a freak injury has nothing to do with greatness it could happen to anybody i really hope it doesn't have to happen to your guy reed because i'd really hope to have to laugh in your face because i would that would feel dirty but i would with relish because it's a part of greatness so somebody fell on his hand in a funky way and it tore a ligament that required surgery. So his season was done. That's what happened to Joe Burrow. And uh, we had a great backup. What? When did that happen? That happened in week nine. Yeah, the Bengals were arguably as good or better with their backup as they were with Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow did not have out. a healthy season at all. He had what he called a game and a half at 100%. <laughs> so it wasn't a good year for Joey B. Nobody claimed that it was. It is what sunk my predictions. It is what sunk our season. But our backup did far better than I think anybody anticipated. And um, wasn't, at the end of the day, good enough with enough veteran experience to get the job done. But performed well. He did do pretty well. He did do surprisingly well. He didn't do so well against the Chiefs. It, was, but... it, was it the Bills game where Burrow got hurt? Uh, Ravens. Oh, Ravens. That's week 11. Six games. That's, that is true. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So they, they did lose that, and then they lost the next one. They lost the next week to Steelers, but then they won the three after that. Pretty good showing for the backup. Browning Browning did really well. Like, he he didn't just win them the game. He was playing Browning, good. Browning, no, football. no. Let's just let's have a moment here where Browning, for four games, had the best <laughs> first four games of anybody's NFL career. Like, the best first four starts had the highest passer rating, like the third highest complete. I may have those backwards. One of them was the highest completion Four rating. Four starts? Yeah. Four starts. So he he would have started against the Steelers, and they lost 16 to 10, and he had the best passer rating? He did. Yeah. We had we had other problems with that game. Okay. But then they but then they did win the next three. And he had he had a passer combined passer rating of like over 115. I don't know what that means, but I'm sure it's great. It's great. I, I would love to know how many games Patrick Mahomes has had over 115 passer rating this year. Jake Browning may have had more. Oh, oh it, that very well could Woo! be. That very well could be. Backups, baby. I don't think... I'd, so are we going to induct Jake Browning into the Hall of Fame then? He gets the 2023 football four-game stretch Hall of Fame. Good job, Jake Browning. So Mahomes had a passer rating over 115 two times. 
two times in 2023 against the bears and then against the uh what is it oh raiders <laughs> i was like lvr what is that i forgot yeah, the raiders forgot they moved that was the first raiders game when we beat them the second raiders game was the worst statistical game of his entire career uh that wasn't his lower lowest passer rating of the season his he, well, he was lower against the eagles and the jets the jets was his worst game there's kind of this catch-all stat uh for that they use for players um that's a complicated algorithm i think it's called expected points added epa mm. um and so per play like that you contribute to how many points are you expecting to add to the board and infamously actually Kadarius tony uh he had an epa of like minus two i think in the lions game so you throw him three passes and that equ that equates to a touchdown for the lions which is basically <laughs> what happened anyway patty's uh, at that i remember reading this after that raiders game and 109 games his his 109th ranked game was the raiders game uh so it was it was bad it was really bad he gave up a lot of points whatever um let's do some postseason predictions because then we gotta we gotta get to our hebrew lesson here indeed yeah we're we have two minutes okay so uh let's just go with the afc then because the niners are gonna lose so it doesn't really matter on the nfc side the niners are going to lose i'm sure they will yep yes i've already said this reed they're gonna lose to the lions it'll be a lions ravens super bowl and the lions win that's all we need to know. Thanks for listening. Let's go. Let's go through the division. Let, now let's go. Let's go through the AFC. Let's go through the AFC game by game. I want to. I want to. I want to get the picks. Kansas City is first in the AFC. Whatever they are, North, Central, West, West. AFC West. Okay. Uh, they're third. They're the third seed. They play against the Dolphins in the first round. I do think we're going to win. Not just because I'm a Chiefs fan. Uh, I think we're going to win for a number of reasons. One. Uh, well, we've already beaten Miami this season. Two, their defense is hobbled, and it was already bad, and our offense is not very good this year, but I think it can score points on that defense. And uh, three, our defense is really good, and Tua, uh, the quarterback for the Dolphins, does not play very well in kind of big pressure, big big games. So I think we will win that game. Um, also, this is what I keep saying. Uh, the NFL regular season is what it is, and it does matter. And I want wins and not losses. But really, all that matters is the playoffs. And uh, historically, Patrick Mahomes is NFL football playoff god. He is just incredibly good in the playoffs. And I will keep hoping in that until he melts down entirely in the playoffs. And Marty, I know what you're going to say. You can save your bit about the AFC Championship game. Yes, he melted down. Other than that, his 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 postseason playoff record is 11 and 3. His worst finish ever in the playoffs is overtime of the AFC Championship game. So, I'm saying I think he gets past the divisional round. I will hope that he will keep going. So, I got the Chiefs in the Chiefs Dolphins game. Marty, who do you got? You can't beat the Dolphins with your kicker. That's not going to work. <laughs> okay okay so uh marty says ravens beat the lions in the super bowl no lions beat the ravens and that's oh lion sorry yeah that's me that's i could never root for the ravens so ever period so. <laughs> okay okay all right fair enough uh and then reed what is your super bowl prediction my super bowl prediction is a chiefs 49ers super bowl and of course i will never pick against patty and andy reed 
you can call it blind faith if you want to. Uh, so I will pick the Chiefs to win the Super Bowl against the 49ers. I know it is not likely, uh, but I, that is going to be my pick. By the way, I'm going to pick the Browns over the Texans, and I think the Browns are going to play the Ravens, and I think the Browns can beat the Ravens, and they will. And I think the AFC Championship game is going to be a Chiefs-Browns AFC Championship. Cinderella story, Joe Flacco versus Mahomes trying to keep his legacy going through a gritty, tough season. It's going to be a great story. I love it. Well, we're late for our Hebrew lesson, so we got to go. Marty, who's your other pick for the AFC Championship? Who's the other pick for the AFC Championship besides the Ravens? Who is it? Your options are KC, Miami, Buffalo, or Pittsburgh. Uh, I believe I have buffalo against ravens i believe okay there you go all right go chiefs